Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, listeners, I'm here with an exciting guest that I just met recently, inspired by his incredible article written on his website, 8weeksout.com. It's Joel Jameson. How are you, Joel? Doing great. How about you? Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so I don't know how I landed on this. Uh, this, this. I think it's it's really a landmark article, and it caused me uh, to to think so much. It was so well presented. This this stuff we talk about all the time that recovery is important. Oh yes, we know that. Uh, but you really you really detailed the story here in a really thoughtful way. So I encourage all the listeners to visit. Um, eight, the number eight weeks out.com and the, um, the, the title of the article, No Pain, No Gain, Why the High Intensity Training Obsession Has Failed Us All. So we will get into the whys there, but I think uh, a proper introduction, I want to find out uh, what a performance architect does up there in the Pacific Northwest, and then maybe a little tidbit about your uh, very interesting hobby that I learned about when you signed on to Skype. Sure. Yeah. So I got started in the in the strength conditioning field back in the late '90s at the University of Washington, uh, and really, like a lot of strength coaches, I basically was just an athlete who couldn't make it to, to the next level, and, and I still wanted to be around training in the team aspect. So I worked at the University of Washington under a great strength coach named Bill Gillespie, and really learned the ropes of strength conditioning. And, and Bill's a 700 plus pound bench presser, so I got a real quick education on how to get strong and big and powerful, all those sorts of things. And then I moved on, uh, followed him to the Seahawks for about a year, and then just kind of decided I didn't want to have the the professional coach lifestyle where you're moving around a different city every two years and you're constantly out of a job. And I just wanted to stay home, close to home. So I opened up a gym back in 2003, and I was 23 years old, didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest with you, but I figured I would uh, try and sort it out along the way. And Little did I know it, but I opened up next to a world-class MMA gym. And at the time, MMA was a very underground sport. And I quickly had a lot of their buyers coming over and asking me to train them for world championship fights. And I realized very quickly I'd learned a lot about strength, but I didn't really know much of anything about conditioning. And so that essentially kind of impacted my career. I had to figure out what conditioning was and how you trained it and what combat sports needed versus football players. And it just took my, my career and my interest in a totally different direction. At the same time, um, I'd been introduced to some technology called heart rate variability by a track coach who had coached Mike Powell and worked for USA Track and Field. It was a really well-known track coach named Randy Huntington. So fortunately, I was able to tap in some technology. I was able to kind of analyze what made a fighter tick versus what made an NFL player tick. And over time, I just built up a lot of experience training combat athletes, training football players, training housewives and everyday weekend warriors and Microsoft executives and kind of a whole range of people. Um, and in 2009, I was seeing a lot of people talking about MMA conditioning because the sport had virtually exploded over the last few years. And I decided to make a forum post on a big forum about MMA conditioning, which got panned roundly because I told them they were doing things wrong. Uh, they and they had no idea I had any experience or who I, who I trained or anything. Um, and so it just sparked a big discussion. And I realized there was a lot of misinformation out there about training for combat sports and training in general. And that's where Eight Weeks Out was born back I said, in 2009. And I was literally me up until the middle of the night coding my website and trying to figure out how to put things together. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but I eventually got the website working and uh, decided to write a book not too long after that. And it's kind of the rest is history. I spent the last, uh, you know, seven or eight years 
doing a lot of speaking, uh, work with a lot of organizations. I, I helped build the Lifetime Fitness's personal training program over the last year. Uh, and they have over 100,000 people go through their, their one-on-one PT program and 3,500, 4,000 trainers. So that's been a big project to work with military and government. I've worked with sports teams. Um, really just a, a wide variety of, of people and clients and uh, all, all the while using some technology and trying to understand what makes people tick and what separates people that are healthy from people that are unhealthy, what separates people from, that perform from people uh, that don't perform. And that's really been my biggest passion is trying to understand those things so we can give people the right information based on you know valid science and based on experience and based on what we see work and what we see don't work. So um, that's that's most of my training background. As far as hobbies, um, I'm a pilot. My, most of my family flies airplanes or helicopters. Uh, I fly both, so I've, I've spent the last several years flying helicopters all over the world, sometimes seaplanes, but uh, helicopters are really the most fun. So I, I try to work to pay for my, my flying obsession is mostly what I do these days. Oh, love it, man. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the details there. It's, it's particularly interesting how you know, the controversy that you sparked and, and the widely panned article, um, I mean, you got a reaction out of people, which to me, um, you know, it's indicative that you possibly were on to something when you hit a nerve and say like MMA fighters overtrain or whatever you said. And they, and they take offense to that. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it is funny. I mean, I don't go, I never really go against the grain intensely go against the grain. I just, you know, sometimes you find things out, you discover things along the way and you share and it happens to go against the grain. It definitely sparks discussion. I think that's good. I think it's good for people to stop and second guess maybe what they're doing or look at different perspectives and, you know, I think discussion is always going to lead to progress down the road as long as people are having an open mind when you go into the discussion. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all trying to figure this out together. No one's got all the answers. The body's incredibly complicated. No one's figured it all out yet. We're just all trying to work together to get there. And I think if people take that approach, you know, ultimately they're going to lead to a lot more success than if they think they've got it all sorted out or they think they have all the answers. They know the only right way. I mean, it's, it's just never that simple in my experience. Well, let's get into the the content of the article that caught my eye, and particularly um, was the, the the concept that was presented that um, the, the the priorities of metabolic function in the body and how rest and recovery actually require energy. <laughs> okay, so um, you're you're kind of putting it into a different category or a different perspective, I guess, where we're, we're, we're on this mindset where we go, 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 and we've done our work, we've done our workouts, uh, we've had a busy day, and then when we flop down, um, that's all there is to it, and it's really more nuanced than that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind you up, and um, let, let's hear what this is all about. Yeah, you know, this, this, is, uh, this whole concept has really just come from, from years of, like I talked about, studying people, seeing what makes them tick, and then using heart rate variability, which it's core heart rate variability is analyzing kind of how your body is distributing energy. And we have to look at the fact that the body can distribute energy to different places at different times for different reasons. And we can broadly categorize those into your body puts energy into dealing with stress and stress can be anything physical to anything perceived as a mental stressor. So anytime uh, we're thinking, we're thinking about a deadline and we're dealing with school or we're dealing with family, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up. We put ourselves in a stress state and the body's designed in that condition to shuttle energy into median demands of that, even if it's just perceived and not even real. So our body can shuttle energy into our working muscles. It can shuttle energy into uh, cognitive function. It can shuttle energy basically into dealing with that stressor. At the same point in time, the body then can also decide essentially when there's not a stressor that it needs to pour all this energy into 
recovery and regeneration, adaptation. Now, the body obviously has to have enough energy at all times for the basic cells to function I and mean, just keep you alive. But there's a difference between functioning and being optimal and being in rebuilding and making bigger and stronger and faster and leaner and all the things that we want to get from our fitness. So what it comes down to and what a lot of the research showed that I discussed there is that your body can only handle or can only produce a certain amount of energy in a day. It's a finite quality. Your, your metabolism that creates energy has limits. And that means that the brain has to ultimately choose where to distribute the energy that your body's capable of producing. And what I basically found over the years um, just through, again, experience and, and using technology and looking at people, it's that people spend a huge amount of their energy dealing with the stress of training, dealing with the stress of life, and the body's got very little left over to actually make tissues bigger and stronger and remodel them in a the way that we talk about. And this is something the Russians actually, uh, the Eastern Europeans in general, I should say, discussed in a lot of their literature back in the 70s. They call it adaptation energy, and they called it basically what was left over after the biological systems were, were taken care of, as they put it, which is your, your rest of metabolic rate. And so I think we have to look at things like I talked about in the article in terms of three categories. Your body's always going to default to making sure you're staying alive. So all your cells have to get enough energy to just function and, and keep you alive. Next, your body's going to deal with the stress it's thrown into. So if you're going 10,000 steps or 20,000 steps or you're doing a high-intensity workout, it's got to find the energy to meet those demands. And then whatever's left over... It's where it's actually going to shuttle into growth and repair and remodeling and even sexual function and all the long-term expensive energy demanding projects like immune system. All these things are essentially the body's discretion to put energy into if it can, or if it can't, it's going to shuttle them elsewhere because the other priorities always come first. And so that really is what I laid down the article. And I think the biggest thing to take away is that we have to be very conscious of what we are asking our body to do. And if we're trying to spread ourselves too thin, we're doing a high-intensity work every day. We're stressed out from work. We're not getting enough sleep. You know, all these things take away, and all these things cost energy. There's not enough left over a lot of times for people to actually get the results of their fitness they're looking for, simply because there's not enough energy to go into building bigger muscles, or to go into building new mitochondria, or to go into building, uh, you know, changes in the, in the central nervous system function. All those things that we want to have happen take a lot of energy. And if there's not left over, your body's not going to sacrifice. Again, you're 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 keeping you alive in order to build bigger muscles. It's always going to default to, you know, basic human needs and our movement and stress. It's always going to be dealt with first. And so that's where I came up with the idea of recovery-driven fitness, the idea that we build our nutrition, our training, our lifestyle, all these things around trying to improve and optimize for recovery rather than just thinking how we can stretch ourselves in more and more intense or different ways. We need to think about both sides of the equation, the training side to stimulate the body and then the recovery side to help it actually realize the gains or the improvements that we stimulated as a result of our hard work. And to me, you know, if we can think about both sides of the equation, uh, I think we will find people are a lot more successful. At least I've seen in my own experience so far that people are much more successful when they have that balanced approach than when they just walk in the gym and think, if I don't kill myself today, I'm not going to see any progress. When the reality is you have to train to stimulate but then you have to recover to improve. So, um, you know, in a nutshell, that's the 30,000 foot view of, of what the article is about and something that, you know, I, I think is important for people to realize it just hasn't been discussed uh, enough in the community over the years.
the graphs, uh, the, the, the drawings of the energy expenditure models uh, was particularly interesting. So we can get a little more distinct. You, you mentioned it briefly in your, in your, um, your, your last comments, but you had a graph known as the additive model of energy expenditure versus the constrained model of energy expenditure. Can you talk about the distinction between those two? Yeah, again, this is something I definitely did not come up with this. This is something I just started researching and finding out more and more information on. And the, those models are, are not something I came up with. Those are uh, research-based models from the articles I, I cited in the in the, my, my article. I mean, basically, what, what they found is that we've always had this idea that the more active we are, the more things we do, the more calories we burn. That's a really ingrained idea that if we go 20,000 steps in a day, well, surely we must have expended more energy than if we only went 10,000. If we only, if we went 10,000, of course we've expended much more energy if we only went 5,000, right? I mean, that's such a fundamental idea that everybody believes to be true because it makes fundamental sense that if you move more, you're ultimately going to require more energy. Well, that again is what we'd call the additive model of energy expenditure. It just means the more you move, the more activity, the more things you do, the more total energy your body's going to produce in order to you know, facilitate that movement. But what the research researchers are finding and what this new model looks like is they actually went into some different cultures. Uh, they went to some tribes in Africa called the Hazard Tribe. They went to the U.S. They went to some other places. There's, there's a few papers on this topic. And they measured total ener- energy expenditure in a different way than we would do so traditionally. Because traditionally, you would just put an accelerometer or a Fitbit or you'd put a heart rate monitor on and you would just translate that movement and assume that for every given level of activity, there's an equivalent amount of energy expenditure. So you'd think, just using that method, of course, that the additive model's right. But this other way they did it called doubly labeled water. They're actually measuring essentially metabolism, and they're measuring a much more direct way of looking at energy expenditure. And what they found was totally different than what you'd expect. They basically found that your body only increases totally energy expenditure up to a certain threshold and once you go above that threshold, it doesn't actually increase how many calories it's producing or burning throughout the day anymore. Instead, again, because they found the metabolism is limited, energy must be redistributed in different ways. So they recreate this uh, very precisely in, in the mouse, actually, and they basically categorized mice into very active. I don't know how they got them to be very active versus moderately active, but they took mice that were basically couch potatoes and did nothing. They took mice that were extremely active and just ran all day in that wheel and they took mice that were moderately active and moved only a little bit on the wheel. And the most interesting thing was that the mice that were extremely active didn't burn any more total calories than the mice that were only moderately active. So it supported this idea that once we go above a certain threshold of energy, we can't fundamentally produce any more. And then that switches our brain into having to choose where that energy gets distributed it really just shows us, I mean, it makes sense that there's a limit to metabolism. Metabolism can't just crank out 20,000 calories in a day, even if you'd like it to. It's just impossible. So once you bump up against the upper limit, then again, the brain has to start making choices of where those calories that it can produce get distributed throughout the body. Do they go into activity? Do they go into remodeling tissue? You know, where are those calories going to go? And that's ultimately uh, what I think drives a lot of the fitness changes we see is making sure that the calories you can produce are not just going into the stress of training or life, but they're also going into the recovery side of things as well. So it's super fascinating research. Again, I didn't come up with this concept. This isn't mine. It's it's the research I just dug up and was looking through. Um, and again, people can find out more. Just look up the constraint theory of, of total energy ex- expenditure. Um, because again, it's, it's a very counterintuitive idea 
to think that the more you move doesn't necessarily mean the more calories you're producing or burning. And it's very contrary to how we've always been taught. And I don't think I put this in there, um, but something else I found that's very fascinating is they looked at percentage of activity, percentage of the population that was active versus obesity rates in different countries. And the U.S., despite what people think, actually has a fairly active population compared to a lot of other countries. Uh, something like 64, 65% of the US, U.S. population is considered active, which uh, I believe in the paper was considered a certain amount of steps per day. Uh, and you, then you look at, we had like 32, 33% obesity despite that activity. Then we go over to Japan, they have something like 20 or 30% of the population is active, and yet they have a less than 5% rate of obesity. So the researchers these days are finding there's not quite the clear relationship between activity and obesity that we thought there was. So I think there's just a lot of concepts around energy expenditure and movement activity that maybe don't quite work the way that we thought they did. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the metabolism can't produce an unending amount of calories. You can go 20,000 steps, but ultimately you're not going to burn any more calories if you went 10,000 steps and you're probably going to take the energy away from important things like rebuilding and repairing the tissues that you're stressing and trying to make better. So uh, you know, again, people need to look at themselves. It's the constrained energy theory or constrained energy model. And to me, it's really fascinating because, you know, like I said, it's just not what you would think. It's it's not intuitive. And it reframes the discussion, I think, around how this whole thing works. Well, that's what we've been talking a lot about in the in the Primal Blueprint works, this compensation theory, especially as it relates to reducing excess body fat. And that states that if you do go out there and burn a bunch of exercise calories, you're going to find a way, uh, both consciously and subconsciously, to be generally less active over the course of the day by virtue of burning all that energy in a distinct workout. And so you end up with a net wash when it comes to weight loss because you're also going to stimulate an increase in appetite corresponding to uh, the extra calories that you burned. Yep. And they didn't have to study the the Hadza. They could have gone and, and studied um, Brad Kearns in 1991 because I relate when I was uh, in heavy training as a professional triathlete, I would make a practice of driving my car to my mailbox, which was six-tenths of a mile away, because I could not be bothered to even pedal my bike or walk and have a nice evening stroll to get my mail because I had ridden 57 miles earlier that day and, and swam two miles or whatever. And so you just have this uh, lazy athlete mentality that we talk about in Primal Endurance as well, where... Um, you're getting that um, you're getting that constrained model that you just you just don't feel like it and you're generally more lazy. Um, so especially for for the weight loss um, element, that's a, that's interesting. But that extra layer that that you describe, where um, uh oh, wait a second, if we're burning that many calories working out and we're working a busy uh, busy job and all those things, then we might be partitioning energy away from let's say our immune system or um, the actual, you know, replenishment of uh, uh, muscle mass after after working out, and then you you break down, regress your fitness, or get sick. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's super fascinating stuff. I mean, there's a couple of points I would I would add to what you just said too. Is is they actually looked at in those tribes the people that were the most active had a five to ten percent lower resting metabolic rate than people that were less active, and that just shows you the compensation that happened as well. When you're extremely active you know, your body can actually reduce its resting caloric expenditure. And probably part of what it's doing is literally taking calories away from uh, some of the sexual function, immune building, all those sorts of things. Um, and then, like you said, I think there's more and more research point out, this is something I'm looking at a lot lately, is that when you are expending all this energy dealing with activity and stress and you're putting all these demands on your body, 
dopamine essentially changes, not changes, but dopamine function serves to reward eating and become less rewardive of activity. And something I found super fascinating was that they're looking at the link between inflammation, leptin, and dopamine's reward of, a, of basically movement in the brain and obesity. And they found there's some dysfunction there where for some reason dopamine doesn't reward the movement as much as, as rewarding eating behaviors in people that are chronically obese. So I think what happens, uh, you know, when you are placing your body under all this stress, you're putting all this energy into activity and the stress of life, and you're just really, uh, you know, overdoing it. Our body rewards our, it starts to reward us for, like you said, not moving, and it starts to reward us instead for eating. And we see all this evidence points to the idea that, you know, not is it a bad idea from a fitness standpoint to put yourself under all the stress and not allow yourself to recover. It's also a bad idea because it drives eating behaviors and it drives you to want to eat more and move less, which of course also has a negative effect on your, your health and your fitness. And there's a really fascinating paper I looked at not too long ago where they basically had people work out and they had them estimate how many calories they thought they burned during the workout. And then they took them to a buffet and they said, okay, we want you to eat the number of calories corresponding to how many calories you think you just burned. So if you think you burned 400 calories, then we want you to eat 400 calories worth of food. And of course, they didn't know how many calories from each of the foods they were supposed to just estimate. What they basically found is that people ate four times the amount of calories that they burned in the activity, and they overestimated their caloric expenditure in the activity by like double. So I don't want to butcher the numbers, but they, they burned something like 200, but they thought they had burned 400, and then they ended up eating 800 and thought they had, you know, uh, eating a lot less than that. So I think our brain ultimately tricks us. And the more energy we expend, the more stress we have to deal with, the more we're just driven to eat. And the more our brain tells us that we need to eat more and more. And it's a very uh, hardwired thing that I think people, you know, you, you just can't override a lot of this stuff. And if you're chronically stressed, you're going to be driven to eat and you're going to be driven to move less, like you said. So again, that's why I think if we look at it from a recovery standpoint we look at it from a, let's balance our stress with our recovery it makes everything much easier because we're working you know within how our body was designed and where we want the energy to go versus just thinking that the more stress we place ourselves under the better we're going to get and ultimately our body fights against that at some point and i think that's why you see a lot of the yo-yo dieting that's why you see a lot of the burnout that's why you see a lot of things happening because people aren't finding that right balance yeah, it seems like this is, uh, like you said, hardwired uh, survival panic mode where if you're overstressed, you're going, you know, you're reaching deep into the tank, your your brain and your, your body's going to respond by over-consuming calories in an attempt to, to catch up and, and surpass your, you know, get get some energy stored just, just to survive, so... Um, that seems like a, you know, that's a vicious circle right there where, um, you know, the more you work out, um, the, the more you're going to eat and the more difficult it might be to lose weight because your hormones are dysregulated too. Absolutely. I think I, I call it a recovery debt. I think it's an easy way to look at it. You know, if you're spending all this energy on training, you're spending all this energy on stress and you're not putting energy back in the recovery bank, you build up this debt. Your body is chronically under load. It's going to do everything it can to get out from underneath that load and start shoving calories, like you said, back into storage. And that's, again, that's where you see the eating behaviors where you're just chronically hungry and you want to eat carb-dense foods because those tend to drive down cortisol lower. Uh, you tend to want to move less, like you said, and you're looking for every way to not move. And I think if you look at you know, a lot of the large population studies, they've seen that exercise by itself you know, has a negligible effect on body weight since because, like you said, people reward themselves by eating more, people start moving less, and people compensate for that. So you know, I think as long as we, if we understand that these are the things that happen when we overstress ourselves – we can start to take a different approach where 
we stress, we recover, we stress, we recover. And we put as much emphasis and time and energy into the recovery side as we do into the stress and training side. And ultimately with that balance, we see a much more healthy progression. And we see people avoiding the pitfalls and the yo-yos and the up and downs and the, you know, the stuff that so many people deal with as a result of the way they're doing things now. Well, I like how you throw everything into the same basket in, in this context where even if you're not an athlete, you have this stress uh, as an energy uh, cost. And it's like you said earlier, all forms of stress. So if you're working too many hours and you're barely exercising, you're in the same category as the overtrained athlete who has no job, who's just out there, you know, burning too many calories and, and getting in this same uh, recovery debt. So um, now someone who's trying to juggle everything and be superstar, super mom, super dad, uh, business leader, and then uh, amateur competitor, um, that seems to be such a you know distinct population that uh, caters to uh, the endurance sports or to the, to the CrossFit scene or uh, you know the, the type A uh, driven type person. Uh, it it seems like this message might be. I mean, you mentioned the year two thousand nine when you started doing the speaking gigs and stuff. Is this message uh, difficult to embrace to the to the go 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 people and how do you get through to them? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's funny. I think the the people that are the most receptive to it are the ones who have been beating themselves up for months or years on end. It's the the younger people that haven't quite paid the price yet. They're the ones who say, oh, I can I can handle it. I'm doing just fine. But you know, I found you know again just just traveling and speaking to a lot of people. The older you get, the more you've experienced a lot of this stuff. The more this light bulb goes off, and you start to hear why. And I think people are looking for the why and they're looking for well, what do I do differently? So, you know, I think a lot of times the type A's or the people that have gone through this, they just need to understand why and they need to be, you know, be given a plan that's different and that they can actually uh, go implement and start feeling better. And that's what I've seen is, you know, a lot of times I'll present the information. I'll say, look, here's why, uh, you know, what you're doing might not be the best approach. Here's something to go try instead. And then they ultimately, you know, they'll go do it. And if they go do it, they ultimately feel better. They feel better. They start to have more balance in, in their lives as a general. They start to sleep better. They start to see their fitness actually improving. So, you know, and in my mind, I, I never tell people, hey, you have to go do this or else. I give people the option. Here's what I found. Here's why I think this is the best approach. Go give it a shot. And ultimately, when people do that, you know, again, I think that's uh, where they're going to feel the difference. And once they've felt the difference, then they can start opening themselves up to uh, learning more about it and taking a different approach. But I've always found, again, in, in dealing with people that are hyper-competitive and dealing with those type A personalities, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of Microsoft people. I've worked with a lot of military personnel and special forces. That's been the best approach that I've tried to take is just it's the education of here's how your body's reacting, here's the things you're probably seeing. And as soon as they start realizing, oh, this does sound familiar, and as soon as I start presenting an alternate way to look at things or a different thing to go out and try, then as soon as they do that, you know, that's ultimately where you can get them get them hooked and get them excited about doing something different because people don't want to feel bad. People don't want to be tired all the time. People don't want to feel exhausted. People don't want to go in the gym day in and day out and not really see improvements. People don't want to not be able to sleep well. You know, they want to feel better. They want to look better. They want to perform better. They want to be healthier. They want to stay healthier. Uh, and as soon as you give them things to go out and do that make them feel better rather than feel worse, you know, then I think you ultimately can open them up to, to a different approach. At least that's what I've been seeing. Well, that's cool. You generally think of the military as sort of uh, old school, traditional, a little bit backwards. But I know from um, doing a little bit of work with the Navy SEAL teams on their uh, family retreats, um, they seem to be really open-minded and embracing some of these progressive principles. Um, what about the MMA guys and the other uh, groups of athletes? Do you see people that are really on the cut? 
cutting edge here with um, kind of rethinking the the old school notions? Um, you know, I think there's there's still a kind of mixture of the old school mentality of you know I'm going to get in the gym every day and beat myself up or beat my teammates up, and then there's the people that again a lot of times it's it's the athletes that have been in the sport a little bit longer now that have been through the injuries that have missed fights that have beaten themselves into the ground. They're looking for something different. And fortunately, um, I, w- I was extremely fortunate. I worked with a guy Matt Hume, who's who's really in my mind without question the best MMA coach in the world. He's taken two guys from beginner off the street into world champion and one in particular now Demetrius Johnson, who just set the UFC world, the UFC record for 11 consecutive title defenses. And in my, my opinion, you know, the best fire in the world, if not one of the best fires of all time and his entire career and all the fires we've worked with has been built around the mentality. So, you know, for example, a lot of the older school gyms, they'll spend four days a week, three days a week, five days a week, sometimes sparring and just beating each other up. All of our guys spar more than two days, no more than two days a week, even up fight prep, you know, they're sparring no more than twice a week. All of our guys swim, they get in the pool and they get conditioning workout in the most low impact ways possible. And, you know, the results speak for themselves. So I think nowadays, like the UFC, for example, they just brought in um, a sports director and they have a UFC gym down in Vegas and they're putting money into trying to help educate their athletes and they're bringing in the fighters to try to break this mentality and to help them approach things from a little bit more intelligent, a little more scientific way. So I think the effort is, is there and people are starting to, again, they're starting to see that what they were doing isn't working. And you see a lot of the guys that um, just spent years sparring and beating themselves on the ground, they're not able to compete anymore they're not the, the same fighter at some point so uh, it's it's you know again it's it's a fighting sport so there's always that that mentality is always probably going to be there but i definitely think we're seeing the tight turn and we're seeing uh, more people being open to a different approach and the ufc is obviously trying to support that because they've had so many injuries decimate their cards i mean you had a period where you couldn't get a single main event that didn't have a cancel or a single card that didn't have one or two fights canceled because of injuries so you know i think they're finally having to do something about it because it's ruined so many of their cards when you have injuries the last minute you have big fighters have to pull out you know it's, it's bad for the sport it's bad for the company so um you know i think we're seeing that change so you know again um like you said the, the military is another good example i've also worked with some of the seal groups they were one of the first groups that i worked with to adopt hrv and use my system uh, five or six years ago and we collected data on hundreds of the special forces guys and they had a whole strength staff whose job it was to keep these guys healthier so you know, I, I think the tide's turning. I think people are are starting to wake up to you know making to to realizing that there, you know, there is a need to focus on something other than just intensity, and they're starting to realize that all the stress of their life does affect their health and does affect their fitness. So, um, you know, I think we're we're hopefully going to get to a point over the next several years where it's you know people talk as much about recovery as they do about you know some train method or some exercise, and they start to look at the bigger picture in a uh, more complete way so you know we'll see but i think it's improving slowly but surely oh my gosh and you know you, reading your article kicked off some uh intuitive leaps and connections for me and i started putting together these comments that i shared with our with mark and our team here and we'll, we'll, we'll distribute them to the public because it's makings of a good uh, blog post and overall message but one thing i found was uh this article from uh nfl superstar julio jones of the atlanta falcons uh, on ESPN.com, and this is a quote from the article. They were asking him about his his diet. He's transitioning to a uh, you know healthy, clean, whole foods diet. 
Uh, and then regarding his off season, he says, I don't have an off season workout regimen. I don't lift weights. I don't run. I don't do anything. I let my body rest. I just eat good. I actually eat great. End quote. And I thought that was so fabulous because, you know, you, you're, we're coming from the era of, you know, the nineties with the legendary Jerry Rice. And all you heard about was the hill that he sprinted up until he vomited. And that's why, <laughs> you know, he was going so long in the NFL. Um, that's great that an athlete keeps himself in shape during the offseason, but I think we're now ushered into a new era where um, we have to think more critically, especially in the fight game. Oh my gosh, I mean, oh, yeah. a triathlete who's uh, a little overtrained coming into a race is, is not going to win a prize check, but in, in a fight, you're going to get your butt kicked if you're not in peak form. So, you know, the rest component is, is getting to be uh, more and more uh, more and more of the central focus for the, the guys who are at the cutting edge. And think about Julio Jones. I mean, this guy, he's very durable. He's been at it for uh, a nice long stretch here at the top level. And right. he has that, um, whatever, that presence of mind to just chill in the off season. I wonder, you know, I wonder for what we're going to see in the future in terms of the elite athlete having this, uh, you know, this polarized training where they're either training really hard or they're, um, you know, they're resting really, really hard. Yeah, you know, I think we're like we're, I think we're starting to see more of that uh, mentality. Just in terms of we're seeing float tanks, we're seeing cry out there, we're seeing people at least focused on it. I don't know if they're the strategies are all there yet, but people are definitely waking up to the importance of it. Where where I think we're failing miserably and probably worse than ever to be perfectly honest with you is with our kids, and I think that's the saddest point. I mean, it's been it's been a while since I've uh, worked extensively with a lot of the youth teams, but we used to have youth volleyball, youth soccer, uh, youth basketball, and those kids are playing five, six, seven days a week, tournaments, one weekend after another, year-round. I mean, our kids um, are just getting hammered because the parents are so um, into the belief that that's the way to get them the college scholarship or that's the way for them to make the varsity team. And you know what? Even if that's the case, even if those short-term um, you know, benefits are there, maybe they do make the varsity team, they're, they're burning each other, burning their kids into the ground. I mean, I, I had 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl with tendinitis and knee problems and back problems. I mean, to me, it's it's insane, and I, I get it. It's driven how the parents want their kids to be successful, but I think the parents that are doing that need to take a step back and ask themselves, is this the healthiest long-term approach for my kids? Because you know, kids are incredibly resilient, and it's amazing that they can withstand six days a week of playing in a basketball court or seven days a week in a volleyball court, but they're going to pay the price for that when they're adults. They're going to pay the price for that down the road, and I can't tell you how many kids I saw, you know, seniors in high school that had loved playing the sport up until – you know, high school where they had a high school season, then they had a club season. There was literally, you know, a month off, maybe at most in between. And even then they wanted to do additional skill work to get ready for tryout. So, you know, I think that the the biggest thing is that that message is, has been lost somewhere and the parents, you know, that are listening are out there, you know, I, I, you know, obviously you want your kids to be successful, but there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a need for balance there as well. And if you're, if your kid's playing a sport six, seven days a week, 12 months out of the year, it's probably not the best uh, long-term most, well-balanced approach for the, for the, you know, for the kid to be successful. So, you know, that's one area where I think we could improve dramatically is just in the youth. Oh my gosh, Joel, you're, you're lighting me up on a hot topic, man. You, you get me going. This is, it, it's an absolute travesty. You're right. And especially, you know, I come from the, the running scene and have had, uh, an influence, uh, on, on youth runners and, uh, coaching my, my own kids through middle school, not in the high school level. But what I observed today, which is, you know, over 30 years after I was, uh, you know, competing in, in high school and college running is this mentality prevails that it's just a, a complete, 
uh, unrestrained, uh, you know, application of stress to the young human until they crack. And those who don't crack uh, win titles and, and get college scholarships, and then they go to college, and then they crack. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And yeah, exactly. uh, so anyone who's listening that has influence on youth sports, and I do get an occasional email from a coach saying, hey, guess what? I put heart rate monitors on my team, and we won the, we won the section title. But um, it, it's really, it's seemingly more about the competitive intensity of the coach and the parent rather than the development of the kid. And so you, you talk about burnout where they, they don't care anymore. Uh, my, my niece, you know, uh, eagerly joined the high school cross country team for the first time and participated in their very rigorous program. And everything was led or was, um, was informed by, uh, the varsity girls who were known to be perennial state competitors. They had one of the best programs in the entire state of California. And so these very elite runners at the top of the pack, were, you know, everything was calibrated off of them and they had no respect for, you know, the mindset and the physical abilities of the novice or the idea that it takes a while to build up or that some kids, you know, might, might need a different experience than others. Uh, when I was a division one college runner, um, the workouts were dispensed to all 24 distance runners on the team and, um, seven of them, uh, thrived and were able to make the traveling squad and compete. And then, uh, an assortment of the other ones were, frequently injured, ill, and broken down. And it was like, it was survival of the fittest mentality rather than, you know, nurturing the individual development. And, and it, it's not that hard to, you know, do problem solving and, and look at someone who's presented in front of you saying, hey, you look a little tired, man. Why don't you go, yeah. why don't you go to the pool instead of kick some more ass in the gym today? Yeah, no, it's, I think like I said, it's, it's the biggest uh, problem I see just because it's, you know, the, the youth are the ones who are, are, they don't know any better. They're being pushed by their parents they're being pushed by their coaches. You know, it's what they're being told is going to make them successful. And it's what they're told is going to get them a college scholarship. I saw, I think in ESPN a couple of weeks ago about a kid in like he was sixth or seventh grade being offered college scholarships for football or being offered letters of, you know, letters of uh, interest for college scholarships. I mean, that is insane for a sixth or seventh grader to be looking at, you know, getting a college scholarship before he's even played middle school football or anything else. Like, I just think it's, it's gotten insane that the, the amount of stress and pressure parents and coaches are putting on their kids. And the fact that, you know, they're, they're only playing one sport now too, which I think is a travesty. I mean, growing up, you know, I'm not that old, but even when I was growing up, you know, everyone did two or three sports and you had a chance to learn different movement patterns and develop different skill sets. And, you know, that's ultimately important for long-term development. Now, Kids nine years old, eight years old, seven years old, he's playing one sport for his entire career. And then you wonder why his shoulders and his back and everything else gets blown apart by the time he's in high school or why he's just miserable because it's all he's done his entire, you know, youth has played this one sport. I think it's just, you know, it's it's unfortunate and I think something has to change because ultimately if it doesn't, you know, the the kids in this generation, 10, 20 years from now, uh, you know, they're gonna be burned out, they're gonna be beat up, they're they're not gonna have any sort of balance and they're gonna pay the price for for what their parents uh, you know, thought was the best approach, but what certainly is is not. So hopefully that message can start to get out there sooner or later too, and and people can can realize your kids need to be playing for the sport for to have fun. You know, their kids let them get in high school and beyond, and then they can look at competitive careers and those sorts of things. But if you're eight years old and ten years old, <laughs> the kid should be having fun. He should be playing sports he enjoys. He should be trying different things and finding what works and what doesn't, and what he likes and what he doesn't like. Or she, it's you know, I just think the mentality is 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 totally totally wrong and, and sooner or later hopefully it'll, it'll change or the kids you know, like i said they're gonna they're gonna pay the price for it if it doesn't 
Listen up, parents. What's up? And guess what? If you happen to have a prodigy on your hands, uh, your prodigy is going to navigate the waters successfully anyway. It reminds me of a great quote um, that uh, was uh, dispensed by or related by uh, Wayne Gretzky's father, Walter Gretzky. And um, he said, uh, or no, it was, it was, uh, it was um, asked of Wayne Gretzky. Someone came up and said, hey, uh, Wayne, you know, how do I, how do I get my kid how do I inspire my kid to, to practice hockey more? And he said, uh, no one ever had to tell me to practice more. You know, he just did it for the pure love of the activity. And that, uh, you know, that, that should shut down every parent that's thinking of, of conniving and creative ways that they can help their kid uh, accelerate up the ladder by joining a different league or signing up with a different trainer. It should be kid-driven, even at the youngest age, is my belief. No, I call it uh, but anyhow, we, we got going on that for sure. But um, early in the in the discussion, you mentioned heart rate variability as a fundamental principle. So I want to, before we go, I know we got to wrap up soon, but I want to dig a little more into that and, and how that has uh, made value for, for you and your athletes. Yeah. So, you know, for, for your listeners who aren't familiar, heart rate variability was a technique or a science that's been around for 67 years. It was actually used back by the Russians and the first person they put in space, uh, Yuri Gagarin was his name. They used heart rate variability to basically see like how is this guy doing when he's in space? What kind of stress is he under? And in a nutshell, what heart rate variability does is it looks at the pattern of the heart rate versus just the heart rate itself. And in that pattern reveals a lot about how much stress the body's under and how it is distributing energy. And it does that by looking again at how that pattern is connected to things. And the brain regulates that pattern differently based on how much stress it's under and based on where the energy is being distributed. So when the body is under stress and the body is exhibiting energy towards stress, you see one specific pattern when the body is in a recovery mode and distributing energy towards those recovery things we talked about earlier, you see a different pattern in the heart rate. And that pattern results from the difference in activity between what's called the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So like I said, I was introduced to that technology back in the early 2000s by Randy uh, Huntington, and I was able to use it fortunately throughout the last uh, you know, 15, 16 years. And what I saw early on was two very important things that helped shape my career. Number one, I saw very quickly that people uh, outside the gym were doing things that had a huge impact on their stress and recovery far more than I would have imagined because I was dealing again with Microsoft executives. I was dealing with housewives. I was dealing with professional athletes and fighters. I was dealing with all these people. And I would find that when people, you know, when a college student had finals week, when a, a mother had a new kid in the house, when an executive from Microsoft had a big deadline coming up, I would see the levels of stress just go through the roof. And I would realize that my training was only adding to that stress rather than helping them cope with it. So quickly I realized just how much outside the gym things mattered in terms of what was the appropriate thing inside the gym. Because the reality is you're outside the gym 23 hours a day, right? You're, you're in the gym for maybe an hour. It's a small part of your day. So I was quickly um, you know, introduced to just how much things outside the gym matter. And that's probably a big part of what shaped me to do a lot of this research and kind of go this direction. The second thing I learned was how much individual differences there are and you quickly find out that certain people are just much more stress resilient they can just shift into that recovery mode much faster and they can just handle higher volumes of training and higher levels of stress they can handle them very well and some people just can't and those people that can't they need different forms of training they need different strategies because if you apply the same level of training to both people one's going to be successful and one's going to completely break so that was really the two things I took away was, you know, outside the gym really matters and everybody's different. And I've kind of started um, everyone's program that I've worked with personally from that perspective of trying to figure out, okay, how do we help these people not just train better in the gym, but how do we help them put together the 
the life structure pieces of making sure their sleep is consistent, making sure they're getting whole quality good foods, you know, their diet is sound and they have all these things in place because if I could get them to do those things, then I knew that my results in the gym were going to be a lot more successful and I was going to be a lot better off as their trainer than if I just let them do whatever they felt like doing on their own. So I've always, you know, put those things first of, of let's look at their lifestyle habits. Let's look at their diet. Let's look at all these things and improve those. And if we can do that, then the training becomes a whole lot easier. So, you know, really that's what the, the great thing about heart rate variability is, is it allows you to get that insight. It allows you to fine tune for people's individual differences. It allows you to see if someone maybe doesn't recover from stress as well as somebody else and then make the appropriate adjustments. So, you know, again, I was fortunate that I was introduced to this technology Many, many years ago, and I've I've been able to you know learn a lot along the way because I could see the real time effects. If I did something and it didn't work, I could see very clearly this person isn't responding well. They're stressed. I'm not doing the right things. I had some very quick feedback, and I didn't have to wait for them to get injured or wait for them to quit or wait for them to get burned out. I could see very quickly that that was the path they were going down. I could make those changes. So, um, you know, it's it's a very effective tool. It's a very powerful tool, um, and and fortunately now it's it's much more cost effective. When I first started using it, it was a thirty thousand dollar laptop <laughs> and I had 10 electrodes had to plug into everybody and it was extremely time consuming to do. And, you know, now I developed a, a system back in 2011. That's a couple hundred bucks. I'm releasing a new one here shortly. That's you know less than that. So it's become much more affordable, much more cost efficient. And again, I think most people uh, can really benefit from just seeing that feedback of what they're doing and how much you know, everything matters. It's not just the workout. It's their entire life and all those things in between that are also making a make or break, not just their fitness, you know, but their health and wellness as well. And I've seen a lot of people, unfortunately, you know, um, I was at, I don't know if you're familiar with Mel Siff. I was at Mel Siff's house. He was a famous uh, well-known scientist, wrote super trained. I was at Mel's house a couple weeks before he died. I was, actually did HRV on him. And, you know, I told him this, this doesn't look good, Mel, you should get checked out. And unfortunately he didn't. And a couple weeks later he had a massive heart attack and passed away. Um, so I've, you know, I've seen firsthand that, you know, this information is hugely important because it correlates so well to, you know, how your cardiovascular system is doing and your risk of stroke and, and heart attacks and all these things. So I think just from a health and wellness, even if you're not trying to perform, just at the end of the day, you're trying to be healthy, having this metric, you know, is, is hugely powerful because it can show you, you know, how well your body is coping with stress and whether you're headed towards disease or you're headed towards problems or if you're on the right track and having that information is, is, is a powerful thing for people, in my opinion. Yeah, we have a great show on the Primal Endurance Podcast with Rhonda Collier talking about uh, our Primal Beat HRV app that you can get on the on the App Store for Apple and uh, strap up and, and get a – I guess I want to confirm that um, you like to – uh, establish that baseline because the baseline is so different uh, among different people, but you have a baseline HRV reading. Most people are putting it on that simplified 1 through 100 scale for the RMSSD uh, value. But then if you establish this baseline and you see uh, what somebody that's 10 or 15 percent uh, lower than baseline, is that your sign that they are overstressed or uh, poorly recovered? Well, it could be both, honestly. So um, you know, like you mentioned, it's not just the the number itself is valuable in looking at their average because that average will tell you something about the person. So if someone's you know average is much higher than someone else who's much lower, generally speaking, the person who's got a higher baseline is going to be better at recovering because their body can shift into that recovery mode faster. But that said, yeah, on, your, on a daily or or short term basis, you're looking at big fluctuations away from baseline. So if they are extremely low, if they've dropped you know five, ten, fifteen points from their baseline. That tells you the body is under a tremendous amount of stress and shuttling energy into that stress response right now. On the other token, if they're shifted way higher, 
it tells you their body's focusing really hard at that point in time on recovering. It's trying to get back to normal. So generally speaking, when you see these big changes either up or down away from baseline, it's a sign that your body is either under stress right now or it's in the process of recovering from whatever stress it was under. So in both cases, you know that, that those points away from baseline probably aren't the best case or the best time to pile a bunch more stress on. It's only when we kind of get back towards our normal baselines that we should be then ready to you know, go train hard again or go place our body under more stress. So I tend to you know, just tell people to avoid the, you know, avoid the outliers. If you're really low, you're really high, you know, be wary of, of adding a bunch more stress on top of that. Um, because that's where you're going to incur again, you're going to recur that recovery debt because you don't give yourself a chance to recover. When your body's recovered, it'll come back towards baseline. When it's not recovered, it's going to be, you know, somewhere away from that. And so that's really the the simplest way to look at using HRV is just keep track of where are you in relation to your normal and uh, giving yourself a chance to train and stress and get recovered and then do it all over again. But making sure again that that is back to you know some reasonable range of baseline will tell you that yes i am recovered yes my body is ready to go hard again uh, and if you use it that way it's again it's, it's a very powerful way to to find that right balance that's the thing why hrv is such a good tool because you know you you can see those changes happening and you'll have to uh you know wait six weeks to see if your numbers went up you can you can see it happening right away and making these little fine-tuned changes as you go and in my experience those little teeny changes uh, just getting an extra night of an extra hour of sleep here and there you know making sure your food quality is what it needs to be maybe you back off one section to wait to the next day you know these little changes here and there add up to big improvements in fitness uh, you know when you're more proactive about it versus you know just waiting till something's not working and then figuring out why you're better off being on top of it making these little adjustments as you go and that's really what hrv allows you to do Joel Jameson, throwing it down hard. I appreciate these insights so much. We're going to distribute this show far and wide because I think it'll really get people to stop and think uh, about this big picture and the importance of recovery. So head over to 8weeksout.com. That's the number 8weeksout.com, and we can uh, find this uh, this landmark uh, article called No Pain, No Gain and many other things from you. Uh, where else should we uh, find you or any other uh, news you want to promote? Um, you know, that's eight weeks out is definitely the best spot. Um, you know, like, so you guys have heart rate variability app. It sounds like I've, I've been working on my own recovery app as well these last couple of years and, and uh, finally releasing one here that'll help give people recovery zone every day. Cause I think that's the biggest challenge I've seen for people is they see their HRV scores and they're not quite sure what to do with them. So essentially I've developed a new app that'll give you a recovery zone, a heart rate zone, that is that right amount of training to help put the body in the recovery state versus the wrong amount of training, which will make you more stressed. So, um, abc.com, I've got more information about that. Um, I do a conditioning coach course for people that are into developing conditioning programs for athletes or for general population that opens twice a year and you know, all sorts of stuff. So if people want to learn more, abc.com is really the place to, to find everything. Oh, thank you so much for spending the time, Joel. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Have a great day. Helicopter taking off. There goes Joel. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, 
then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit primalhealthcoach.com and subscribe.